You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, um, I trust you are well and had a good time or an interesting time at least at the Smart Energy Expo in Sydney last week. Uh, Giles, I am well. I trust our audience as well, at least here in Sydney, enjoying some good weather for Mother's Day weekend. Uh, and yes, I very much enjoyed my time at the Smart Energy Expo, and uh, I think there was a great, a good buzz, as there always is around that expo, and some good presentations uh, as well. Uh, and mainly, there was just a good community spirit amongst the renewable energy, largely solar, I have to say, that was there. Yeah, look, that's true. I've got to say, I'm in my walk around with some of the solar um, providers, there was a little bit of concern. Some people were doing it pretty tough. It's been a bit of a, a poor start to the year in Australia, and I guess that has to be put in perspective. Um, we had 3.2 gigawatts um, last year in 2021, which is pretty much world-leading, particularly for the level of population that we have. We're probably going to get 2.4 gigawatts this year, which is still pretty good, but it just means that a lot of people who might have thought there was going to be more have, um, I think some of the wholesalers are doing it tough. I think some of the installers are doing it tough. There's been so much rain. People have struggled to get rooftops, uh, solar, solar panels on rooftops. So it wasn't all sort of fun and games. Um but it was interesting just to sort of see some of the um, political um, – everyone's obviously just really keen to find out what the result of the election is going to be, as we all are. We heard quite a bit from some of the so-called Teal independents. Um, Adam Bant gave a very passionate speech. Chris Bowen was there giving a speech, also there with Anthony Albanese before getting railroaded by the – political um, journalists and trying to get their gotcha moment and they reckon they did, which is... So, Giles, let me ask you this. You've had a chance, uh, you follow politics uh, more than I do. I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek. Of all the uh, actual policy announcements that you've heard during this campaign, uh, what's impressed you? Well, I think the fact that the Teal independents want to have a decent discussion about climate policy um, and are very keen on actually making it um, um, uh, fitting with the climate goals. Um, Labor has actually made some pretty good statements. I mean, we all know that their um, interim target is probably short on what needed needed for Paris climate goals, which is, I think, why many people would wish um, the Teal independence to have a balance of power in any future government, particularly Labour government, or or even... um, It's probably about the only way that that would actually happen. Um, But, you know, Chris Poe has been saying something he said over the week uh, at the conference, sorry, that, you know, everyone knows that coal's going to close down. doesn't really matter which party's in power. This is of the, the reality that doesn't seem to be um, embraced by the likes of AGL, which is why Cannon Brooks has sort of jumped up last week and spent $660 million on grabbing 11.3% stake. And that seems to be all about whether the policy or the strategy is actually fitting in with the Paris climate target, which must be at least 
two degrees capping global warming. And if we can, I mean, some people say it's too late, as we found out in our um, last podcast, poss- quite possibly at uh, 1.5. So, Giles, I would say I've been, I think Adam Bant has generally delivered the most uh, serious policy announcements. But of course, he's for for the average voter in Australia, notwithstanding that I actually agree with his goals and, and I think the policies are good and credible, but nevertheless, they're too far ahead to, uh, it, it, you know, you have to live with politics the same as we have to live with po- climate change. And I think the other thing that uh, statement that really impressed me was the firmness with of Kylie Tink standing up saying that we had to have some vehicle emission standards. That was that was her price. Yes. Uh, anyway, uh, probably enough on politics. Of course, uh, we've also heard the Queensland Nationals saying that climate change is dead. Uh, um, uh, which and, is Pauline sort of, Hansen, and Pauline Hanson saying that um, basically we don't want people to breathe out because that um, emits uh, carbon dioxide. So, um, probably like it if Paul, <laughs> Pauline didn't breathe out too often. But anyway, they, look, let's get, move on from that to Cannon Brooks. Okay. Cannon Brooks and AGL, tell me about what you think. Uh, I think it's going to be a close run thing. I think it's when when an independent experts report, uh, which I haven't actually read in detail yet, I must be honest, uh, recommends that a merger is in the best interests of shareholders, then that carries some weight uh, around the place, uh, to be to be fair. On what I have so far seen, there's not much forecasting and a lot of history, uh, which doesn't, you know, and there's an uncertain future. So uh, I'm going to not uh, be too... Uh, it's, I think that the block, the stake that Cannon Brooks has is very significant. Uh, a lot will turn on, I suppose, how many of the... Uh, small shareholders end up voting. But look, we, we, there's not much value that you and I can add to this yeah, whole no, process. I'm just, I'm just, I, I, I did actually scan through the um, document because I had to write a story about it. Um, it came out on Friday when I was sort of in a plane flying back from the conference um, back to home in New, northern New South Wales. I had a bit of a look, look at it today. Interesting, they've got quite a big section about the disadvantages or the risks of the demerger, and it seems to underline the very point that Cannon Brooks was making, mainly that the newly created Axel Energy, which will hold the coal-fired power stations, is in no way... Um, in line with the Paris climate targets. Uh, it doesn't even try to get there. It doesn't even try to get close. It admits that this um, combined merger may be worth less separate than it is combined, that its financing costs may rise by between 1.2 and 1.4%, that it will have to have another $200 million in the kitty just to deal with things like margin um, calls on some of its trading um, exposures, uh, that's going to cost $260 million just to sort of implement that sort of advisory fees and other things. Don't you wish you were an investment banker again, David? Um, $260 million in advisory fees, of which $160 million are locked in now anyway because they've gone so far down the track whether the demerger goes ahead. And it's basically, they even admit it could be less efficient financially. Um, these are the very arguments that Cannon Brooks is making. So it's... Um, it's an interesting document. <laughs> of course, it spends another 330 pages saying why it's a good thing, but essentially not much new there. They just think they, they just like to park the good bit in one company and the not so good bit in another company and kind of be done with it. Um, but that's not the argument that Canon Brooks is pushing down. It says, if you're going to decarbonize and we must, this is Australia's biggest polluter. Let's give it the biggest, most resources and let's just have one clear strategy going towards zero emissions. So, as you say, it's going to be close, but it's going to be fascinating. 
Yes, uh, the only point I'd make is that since the 160 million is spent, it is uh, it's a historic cost, so it shouldn't influence your vote. You know, I mean, that's it's wasted money. It's either it doesn't it's dead. That money's been spent. It's the future costs and revenues. Uh, moving on, moving on from that, Giles. Um, uh, I, I, I think uh, electricity. You know, and to the point, electricity prices have remained sky high. They've actually gone up in Victoria now quite significantly as well since Loy Yang had an outage. Um, uh, the reasons for it are kind of fairly well known. Uh, I guess the point I would make, it, it's, it's a pretty obvious point, is that it's locked into futures to some extent now and things aren't going to improve until coal and gas prices come down or until we get some new uh, uh, wind and solar supply coming up. And the thing that really struck me again at the uh, Smart Energy Conference where I had to talk about uh, wind in Victoria, offshore wind in particular, is, you know, it's a big thing to be doing this offshore wind, but it'd be a bloody good effort from Victorian government and everyone else down there if they could just make them gold wind and AEMO, uh, if they could just make the Moorabool 330 megawatt wind farm and Stockyard Hill deliver the other 270 of its 500 something, only half going. So there's 500 megawatts of power uh, just sitting around there. It's been sitting around for two years and not doing anything. I think it's yes. a black mark on all concerned. And um, uh, it does make me wonder, uh, you know, when we look at the offshore wind in Victoria, it, it, it doesn't really solve all the social license issues because all the transmission still needs to be built. And on the one hand, you've got endless people calling for more transmission, but no national concerted plan to get... Um, uh, to, to, to get to get the social license that's required nationally to make it happen. I don't want to talk too much more, but, you know, Chris Bowen's got uh, his infrastructure fund, which we need to look at uh, and, and investigate a bit more. And, of course, there's no detail about that. But I think the thing that myself that I would like to see from Labor, should they be lucky enough to win the election, uh, because we're not going to get it from the current government. That's become very clear. So it can only be the other party, that, uh, another party that delivers it. Uh, and that is to get the um, uh, national grid back, the national electricity market going again. At the moment, we've got a useless policy in Queensland, which is frankly as, as bad almost as the federal policy uh, in some ways, like it's just too ad hoc with no actual uh, policy mechanism, if I can put it that way. Uh, we've got New South Wales doing its thing, which is fine. And Victoria's felt left out because under under the um, integrated system plan for how, the best way to do things, you don't build as much in Victoria. Victoria loses market share. You know, and Victoria's got unhappy about that. They don't want to import electricity. They have, it has to be done in Victoria. So it becomes offshore wind at whatever the cost is. Now, it may be a great thing offshore wind. I'm not sure. I don't think the case is proven yet. But what I do know is there's a lot of onshore wind resource in Australia that could get built uh, in various regions, including Victoria, in South Australia, in New South Wales and in Queensland, if we could just get, uh, uh, you know, uh, some agreed agenda that it needs to be built and it's a good, and it's a good thing to do. 
Mm. Well, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's um, it's uh, interesting what you pointed out there with the uh, Murabell and the Stockyard Hill wind farms. Um, absolutely no transparency there. No idea. No one has any idea apart from those two companies and the, and the market operator and uh, hopefully the government about what's actually going on. Um, so clearly a problem because, as you say, Stockyard Hill has been effectively sort of constructed for um, the best part of two years and still not operating anywhere near full capacity. Murabell has um, been going for that long as well, Giles. And look, it brings to the fact that I. AEMO is the transmission operator in Victoria. AEMO yes. seems to want to have 101 different hats. You know, it wants to be the trustee in New South Wales. It wants to run the gas markets. It wants to run West Australia. Can it just make transmission access happen properly? Uh, and, you know, everyone would be a lot happier. And to me, it should get rid of some of these other functions and just focus on what is mo- it could, where it can add most value and what is most needed in Australia, and that is to get the integrated system plan agreed on and happening. Good point, David. One final thing before we go into this week's interview is that I just came across, I haven't found out the answer yet, but um, one of the very first solar farms built in Australia, the Magalane Solar Farm, um, about 13 megawatts, has gone into voluntary administration. And I'd really like to know why and how, because it struck a contract with the ACT government to get paid $178 a megawatt hour for the next however many years, it must be at least a decade or 15 years or 20 years, I can't quite remember now, in the ACT government. But how does a solar farm built, getting that much money guaranteed each year for perpetuity, go into voluntary administration. It's going to be fascinating to find the answer. And we, we must get on to our interview with Stephen Sproul uh, very shortly, but the other, there has been a lot of news this week uh, in the background, and, and the other thing that I think is uh, sort of a, a change in the uh, AEMO retreating from its, uh, not AEMO, excuse me, the AMC retreating from its prior position on locational marginal pricing to have uh, to take into consideration the views of what the actual players in the market uh, think would be a good answer, and I'm hopefully hopeful that this will signal a new, um, you know, by consensus uh, and a, a willingness to listen takes you a long way, doesn't it, Giles? We should do more listening. We should listen to Stephen Sproul. Well, if we well, we're going to listen to Stephen Proud in a minute, but um, there's one point I'd like to make about that, and I think you're quite right about the AMC. But it's going to be interesting. So many of the r- new rules that are going to be considered as far, part of a future energy market are more or less going to be defined by the decisions taken by the New South Wales government in the creation of its renewable energy zones, and that's going to be really interesting. That's why whatever New South Wales does is going to be very carefully scrutinised and have a really big impact on the rest of the market. So that's just uh, one observation I'd like to make. But in the meantime, let me introduce the interview that you have done because I wasn't able to do it. Um, when to join well, let you. me introduce it. Let me introduce oh, it, Giles. Okay, you do it, I, I did the interview. I <laughs> uh, was happy. Stephen Sproul spoke uh, very early on in 2021, and at that time, grid forming inverters, virtual synchronous machines, uh, was an interesting idea, but it was uh, not really uh, accepted as necessarily the, the leading way forward to an inverter-driven grid. Over the past 18 months, it may still not be uh, fully accepted, but it's gained a lot of uh, acceptance and popularity. And it was great to get Stephen Sproul, who's the head of technical sales, microgrids and energy uh, systems uh, at Hitachi ABB, an underestimated company in Australia, uh, back to talk about what's going on in West Australia and how we should move the NEM forward. Uh, Stephen Sproul, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders uh, podcast today. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, well, in fact, it's a welcome back. Uh, look, at the beginning of last year, we started uh, our first episode in 2021 was about uh, 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 grid forming inverters and virtual synchronous machines. And I think over the course of the year, um, certainly I learned a lot about uh, these devices and, and these important devices. But let's take a step back. Could you uh, basically explain uh, uh, in, in a couple of quick words, the difference between a grid, <laughs> a grid forming, and a grid following uh, inverter, and 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 why, why in as the uh, level of inverter-based resources, that is, wind farms and solar farms, increases in the NEM, and the amount of synchronous generation, that is, the big thermal machines, uh, reduces, that we are likely to need to change the way we provide system services like frequency control and voltage and current. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, again, thanks for having me back. And I think in the last 18 months, not just yourself learned a lot, but the industry as a whole, if I look at where we, you know, the topics we were talking about, then there was a, a little bit of skepticism and, and certainly there's, there's much more acceptance and understanding of the important role that this technology can play. So look, grid following, the, the vast majority um, of renewable plant and energy storage is grid following. So that technology looks for the, the grid waveform and pushes energy onto the system to provide energy as a service. So that's obviously useful, but, but it relies on a key assumption that there is a grid to follow. And as we, as we make our way further along the, the transition, some of those assumptions are, um, are no longer valid. So we see challenges with system strength, with minimum demand, and they're all associated with not having enough synchronous machines online or being located very far from the, the strong synchronous machine waveform signal. So that's where where grid forming converters step in. Um, traditionally, they've been used in the off-grid system to, to set the, the voltage and frequency of the network. But with the, the path we're on, um, large interconnected grids need to start introducing these or we'll hit up against hard limits where we need to keep a minimum amount of synchronous machines online for the stability, inertia, system strength that they provide. So they're increasingly important if we're to to continue down this path of, of full decarbonisation. Right, uh, and we're going to look at that in quite a bit more detail in the time we have. I'd like to start, uh, I guess, with where actually grid forming inverters, it seems to me, have already made a very Im big impact and started to improve, has started to prove their worth uh, in the West. Uh, and in West Australia and particularly in the northwest shelf in what was the off-grid but is becoming the what I call the, the northwest shelf grid but it's probably got a better name could you just talk about the installations that have gone in there and maybe how the size of them and uh, how they're all working just talk about that 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 space a little bit yeah absolutely it's an interesting contrast when we look at at west coast and east coast so um, back in 2017, we did one of the first large-scale virtual synchronous machines, and it was one of the first large-scale BESS in Australia at, at Newman, supplying the Roy Hill mine, and that was for Alinta. So 35 megawatt, 20-minute uh, system there, just undergone its five-year maintenance, so quite, quite a lot of um, runtime. A lot of people, you know, as they understand some of the challenges more, 
look at virtual synchronous machines and grid forming technology as a new technology, but it, it, it certainly isn't. It's more our understanding of some of the problems um, that, that's emerging and, and more recent. So we have that system. We're also delivering about 100 megawatts in total for, for both Rio Tinto and, and FMG. Um, again, these are in the, the, Pilbara, the Pilbara networks. And I think what's interesting there is the West is really implementing grid forming inverters and, and virtual synchronous machines because it's the most effective way to switch off gas generators or, or synchronous machines in that part of the network. And I think it just adds a bit more clarity that, you know, the end goal is to switch off uh, greenhouse gas emitting generators. And the most effective technology to do that is grid forming converters. And in contrast to the East Coast, I think there's a lot more happening that can distract from that end goal. And, um, and we've obviously seen the deployment a lot less of, of grid forming converters in that part of the world. And so in these West Australian uh, operations, the, there's of, often an inverter based resource like a solar farm or a wind farm that is firmed up by perhaps a battery and also perhaps by a gas generator, but the gas generator is not running all, all the time. And essentially what you call, what Hitachi calls uh, a virtual synchronous machine and we can, or a grid forming inverter with a battery uh, is acting as essentially the master control device to keep it very, very simple for, for that network. Yeah, look, in a lot of cases, there's, there's maybe not even renewables there. The, the, the strongest or most compelling business case and, and why some of these systems went in ahead of, of other grid-connected systems is it's about replicating a synchronous machine in these, um, in all power systems. But again, this is a good example. You need to run more generation than you're actually consuming in, in what you call operating. So, Stephen, uh, the reason why uh, we're seeing this influx of systems in, in the West is and the role that grid uh, uh, forming inverters, virtual synchronous machines, as Hitachi calls them, is basically to act as the master controller in, in mining systems uh, where I guess there's often a wind and or solar resource and typically a, a gas generator maybe with a battery as, as backup and, and, and the and as I say, the virtual synchronous machine, the grid forming inverter acts as the sort of master controller. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, so look, the business case for all of the, um, the systems in Western Australia, quite a compelling business case. And one of the reasons these um, kicked off, I guess, ahead of some of the grid connected systems is with all power systems, you need to operate more generation than you've got demand. And that's what you call operating reserve or, or spinning reserve. And the reason for that is if you have an issue, a generator trips off, you want to make sure you've got enough generation online to meet the load. So in some cases, there's no renewables connected yet, but it's about replacing a synchronous machine, not having it run 365 days a year just in case. It allows that to switch off. The fossil fuel that displaces um, pays the business case but it also lays a strong foundation to connect renewables later. So you don't have issues like system strength and lack of inertia emerging in the future, like we see on the East Coast, connecting renewables first and then finding the problems. It, it lays that foundation to then build out the renewables. Um, so again, quite a contrast to, to what happens on the East Coast. And the next uh, thing, as we start to think about introducing these systems into the uh, NEM, 
uh, I guess, first of all, the task uh, was to prove that a, um, a virtual synchronous machine, a grid-forming inverter, let's call them virtual synchronous machines, could actually interact with the NEM and, and not cause any problems and add some value. And I think the Dalrymple Bay uh, system in South Australia showed that where it was able to uh, connect and disconnect from, from the grid and uh, provide system services uh, in that part of South Australia, including to a 30 megawatt uh, wind farm, I believe. Yeah, so it's, a, it's actually a 90 megawatt wind farm, but we, we curtail 60 megawatts when, when we're islanded. So it's, it's at the same level as the best you wouldn't. Um, but yeah, look, that, that's right, David. We, um, we did the Dalrymple system and it's a bit of a misconception. I guess what drove the, um, look, when we say virtual synchronous machines, that is one form of controlling a grid forming inverter. So grid forming inverters are, are really the, uh, the core mechanism and how the converter works, but to be able to allow it to connect to a grid, to operate in parallel with other generators, you need to operate it as a virtual synchronous machine. Um, there are a couple of other methods to, to manage the control, but we use virtual synchronous machines and that's what's been implemented um, quite widely in Australia because of the, the footprint we have now with these machines. Um, but to get back to Dalrymple, what necessitated it to be a VSM was the, the fact it had to island with the wind farm and back up the local peninsula. Um, but while it's connected to the grid, it's a bit of a misconception. It, it always operates as a virtual synchronous machine or a grid forming converter in parallel with the NEM. And that certainly drove a lot of learnings as to how it can help, you know, broader interconnected power systems. So last time we spoke, we had a lot of good results from the Dalrymple system. And I think in the last 18 months, industry more broadly, AEMO's done a lot of work with their, with their white paper and, and Arena's invested in, in some studies around um, how this technology can support them. So tell me what, just quickly, what the main learnings have been over the entire um, time that Dalrymple Bay has been in. Obviously, there's been a couple of major NEM-wide system events um, and uh, battery systems in general in South Australia have performed uh, pretty well in helping. Uh, what's, what's the overall sort of message at the moment? Look, I think the, the message, AEMO identified, I guess, four, four areas that, that grid-forming converters can, can support the power network. One is to support system strength. So at the extremities of the, the NEM, there are challenges with connecting renewables because of the, the weak grid signal, if you like, getting further away from the, the last synchronous machines online. So virtual synchronous machines have, have been proven through, through studies that, that um, Arena's invested in um, that they can replace the synchronous condenser. They were the technology that's, that's been brought back in to support these sort of applications. And the, the studies there have shown it's about a one is to one relationship with um, the benefit of a virtual synchronous machine compared to a, a synchronous condenser. The other one is then allowing us to reduce the minimum operating demand um, limits. Again, that will be a hard limit that will just cause more and more renewables to be curtailed unless we can bring that down and ESCRIs help support that. But really we need to, we need to demonstrate that at scale and that's the next, um, I guess, funding round that ARENA are investing in at the moment, which, which is critical. I think when we look at, you know, if it takes two years to, to register and connect one of these systems, 
we're um, we're very quickly running out of time when we look at some of the announcements in um, coal-fired power station closures. So that's another area. Islanding and Black Start. There's there's a lot of other um, functions that these this technology can provide, and they will provide it. But I guess the most pressing concerns are system strength and um, managing the the minimum operating demand and and replacing that inertia and system strength from from the coal fire power stations. Now, Stephen, as we could get into a couple of uh, uh, more real world even than, than Dalrymple Bay, more important examples. And I, I want to come back to uh, uh, Victoria and, uh, and Western Victoria, uh, which has obviously been a complete disaster area for everyone involved. I, you know, I, I think it's a huge black mark on, on, on AEMO, frankly, that it's been ever allowed to get to this. But I'm not asking for your comment about that. Uh, I, I want to understand. I, I think that um, they improved things in, in Southwest Victoria in that rhombus of regret by uh, tuning the grid following inverters and just and making them all work a bit better. But uh, I think it's also could have been done with a with a grid forming inverter. Um, just explain it to me as a layman. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, look, I guess we are undergoing, particularly in Australia, the, the most rapid change of any of any um, jurisdiction. So the, there's obvious challenges and unfortunately here we're finding them before others. So I think that was one of the the things that led to the tuning of, of the, the solar inverters in that part of the network that, you know, out of the box for other markets, it wasn't required that they'd operate on, on such weak parts of the network. So they were able to I guess tune the control systems of the grid following inverters to operate at a, a weaker um, level than they'd had been before. So that's obviously a good outcome, but it's also just, I guess, pushing things a bit further. At, at the end of the day, they still need to follow the grid waveform. And as that continues to get weaker, um, you know, you can only take that so far. So the alternative would have been to put in a synchronous condenser or a virtual synchronous machine to basically shore up that, that voltage waveform and enable the solar plants to, to have a stronger signal to follow, essentially. And, you know, I mean, you're talking your book here, and that's fine because I like the book. Uh, <laughs> but do you think that's what really uh, they should have done or, or could even still do? I mean, if you put a, vir a virtual synchronous machine in there, I suppose you haven't done the studies, but would you suddenly be able to uh, connect a whole lot more? Yeah, look, I think that every every part of the network has different characteristics and, and it's not just, a, I guess, a single... It's quite hard to compare. I guess what we do know is that, um, you know, this time, well, 18 months ago when we spoke, there was some lack of clarity on what, how many virtual synchronous machines you'd need to get equivalent performance to a synchronous condenser. And, and there's been work done to show that it, it's close to one as to one, if not the, the virtual synchronous machine can do a little bit more. And um, so I think that's important just at a higher level to understand. We're not talking about putting six times the um, capacity to meet the fault current, which was one of the, the early, um, not accusations, but one of the early assumptions. So you could use the virtual synchronous machine. And I guess the, the advantage of that is, while it gives you that 
enhanced system strength for the local uh, renewables to follow. You also have storage behind it that you can participate in markets, open up revenue streams. You can do the, the black start and, and um, if you were doing islanding in a particular part, it just, it just opens up a lot more opportunities. So it, it gives you that ticket to play by allowing the renewables to, to stay connected, but then it also opens up opportunities. So I think that's the important piece. Um, but I also think, you know, if we can tune the grid following to do, you know, perform better in weaker parts of the network, that's obviously going to help progress the industry as well to, to get to the targets we need to get to. And before I get on to what I really want to talk about from the very beginning, what um, there have been some discussion. What you tell me? What are the disadvantages of, of grid forming inverters uh, with storage, virtual synchronous machines? I mean, we've got a cost issue, obviously, um, uh, but uh, they don't necessarily provide as much system strength as I mean. There's this debate about fault current versus synchronous condensers. Uh, what what are the other issues? And, and I guess the other issue that I suppose I'm, I'm always wondering about, I don't think it's much of an issue, is just how they're all going to work in conjunction with each other, which is going to be the lead uh, virtual synchronous machine, you know, the primary one. Um, or is, is that something I need to think about? Yeah, look, it, it, they're all good questions. I mean, to, um, to the answer the, the first one, the, there's actually not a a cost difference between grid following and, and grid forming from a hardware perspective. So I guess the, you know, the, the implementation and R&D is, is being covered and, and the hardware is the same. I guess what's really the, the cost difference is there's been much more grid following can best systems connected to the NEM. So you are biting off, you know, a little bit more risk in terms of going through your, your grid connection process with the grid forming best. And at the moment, there's no incentive, you know, the, the extra services you can provide can't be monetized. So if you're looking at, I've got a best project, I make money in FCAS and arbitrage, you wouldn't take a, you know, a technology that hasn't been delivered as much because you're just biting off more risk. Um, obviously, we need that to change because they deliver value services. And thankfully, Arena stepped in to, to help you know, incentivize some um, delivery of these systems because they, they understand the value. So not really a cost differential on, on hardware, but we need a few more of these connected because um, the grid connection is the biggest risk to, to these projects and you want to make sure that you get through. Um, when we then look at how they operate together, look, the virtual synchronous machine implementation, it replicates how a synchronous machine works. So it's really the grid, they all collaborate um, to forming the grid equally and they respond um, the same as a synchronous machine would. So if the, if the frequency drops a little bit, all the machines will, will um, respond to that with inertia initially and then the, the, the governor. So they really use the, the grid waveform that they are all contributing to generate um, as I guess the mechanism that keeps them all in sync. So they all you know, move up and down together. And that's an important aspect of the, the virtual synchronous machine that you've got the ability to, um, to have that control and, and that everything works in concert and, and there's not fighting or one lead machine trying to, trying to um, rule the roost and cause issues for, for the others. Let me ask then about 
generally speaking, as as the NEM moves towards a, a, a fully invertebrate system, uh, my first question is: Do you think we can run the whole NEM using uh, virtual synchronous machines? Yeah, so <clears throat> I certainly do from a, from a technical perspective. I think. Um, you know, the ultimate solution will be a mix of, of technologies. I think, you know, synchronous condensers, there's been um, a number of those, I think four in, in South Australia installed. And again, that's helped to bring down the amount of um, gas generation that's needed to be kept on for, for security. Um, but I was just actually at a, a webinar that the University of Queensland put on and they did some modelling in California and that went right through to, to proving that um, they're, operating 100% inverter-based resources with um, grid forming making up about 12 to 20% of that. So I think we've seen it. I mean, the Dalrymple system, for example, when it islands, there's no synchronous machines online. All the energy comes from the wind farm and the rooftop solar. And then the virtual synchronous machine is essentially just setting the grid and allowing all the energy to come from those renewables. So technically it's possible. I think the, the Pilbara network's an interesting one because microgrids are typically quite geographically concentrated. So as we, we do these, this technology across a broader network, we can start to understand the interactions and, and how, it, how they all play together. But I don't see any reason why we can't get to 100% inverter-based generation um, from a technical perspective. Yeah, that's right. And when you, you talk about the 12 to 20 percent, I mean, that's the you've got the inverter. Uh, but I understand that the active power is provided by the storage. So it, it means that a certain number of in megawatts of the uh, of the uh, inverter based resource that exists across the whole grid has to one be defined as a as a uh, grid forming uh, mode. Uh, but also have some storage attached with it to provide the active power injection? Is, am I sort of on the right track? Yeah, that's right. I think you, you need, like it was interesting at the, the, the conference we were at um, the last couple of days, there was discussions about short duration and long duration storage. And, and the way I see it is the physics of a power system, you need a small amount of, of real power behind the virtual synchronous machine to operate stably in real time. In terms of longer duration, I mean, you can, you can overbuild your renewables, you can, you can store it. So there's probably an optimization um, there as to what the best approach is, but you certainly need a, a small amount of, of real power to, to provide these services. Um, again, a lot of the systems in, in Western Australia, they're 20 minutes and that's defined by how long it takes to, to start up and synchronize another generator. Um, on the NEM, you know, systems are typically an hour or two long, um, but from, I guess, from a physics perspective and what we're talking about here, it only needs a few minutes. And then the rest of it is really defined by, you know, the revenue streams or markets you wanna participate in. Yeah, and in fact, if the storage has actually been provided by batteries anyway, uh, it might be time measured in microseconds as far as that goes. So, I mean, you know, it's always the question of what you're designing your battery for, but that's a completely separate topic. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask about, Stephen, having established the validity, you know, the conceptually of, of a, <laughs> uh, 
of 100% inverter-based resource that is 100% renewable, essentially. I just wanted to ask about network topology because I've always been fascinated by this idea that you could actually build things up from the community outwards. Uh, you know, you could have the household uh, as, uh, as the basic unit of uh, production with its rooftop solar, and then you can go up to the community and the office buildings in the area, minimising the use of the wires and the poles. Uh, and then for your industrial loads and, and other times when it's raining or whatever, you can, you can draw on the broader grid. And it seems to me that if you had like grid forming inverters at all these little nodes, almost like computers in a computer network, uh, that you could have a, in the end a far more resilient and, uh, and, and, and uh, different grid to the way things are done today. Of course, it would require massively different uh, regulatory and economic models, but um, in me just throwing that out there as a sort of thing while we're having a beer, what would you say? Yeah, look, I think that, you know, I wouldn't make too many predictions. I think we can see the pace of change and anything you predict today um, could be wrong in a few years. But I think what it does show, and I always go back to it, one thing that's not going to change, the laws of physics won't change in 2030 or 2040. Um, so having this technology will be important to support the grid, but it does unlock those sort of opportunities. I think we're, we're no longer encumbered by having large-scale centralised power, you know, coal-fired power stations. We could have, you know, smaller-scale distributed virtual synchronous machines at zone substations down at the neighbourhood level. Um, and then there is, you know, there is additional work in terms of, you know, at the moment for the NEM, AEMO orchestrate, you know, what generation comes on based on load forecasts and, and does all the balancing. And then at a microgrid level, you have controllers to make sure that, you know, in equals out in terms of generation and load but provided you bring that in there's no reason you can't like like Dalrymple does during times of um, of an outage it disconnects it, it can run indefinitely unless there's a really adverse uh, wind resource situation and then it will resynchronize when the grid's back so I think you know we just commissioned a system in WA at, at Calbarry which um, end of a long line virtual synchronous machine the line goes down, it just seamlessly backs up the town, they don't even notice. I think that's where it's going to start, at these, these areas that do have reliability challenges. And, um, and then once we get that at scale, I think it'll, it'll move closer to the cities and, and we'll have quite a different network than we've got today. Yes, I think it will start at the fringes, but I think it could also start at the, at the community level with uh, community batteries and, uh, as well. I think both... It could push in both directions. It's interesting. And when we talk about the uh, broader grim, grid, we've just seen uh, a rule change published today, uh, which goes to, you know, where economically it's advantaged to, to put grid forming in, inverters, uh, virtual synchronous machines. And uh, in my mind, they should be put where the system strength is the weakest, because that's where the greatest need is, you know, rather than necessarily locating them where a defunct coal-powered station is, which has got tons of automatically transmission and, and, and system strength already. We, we, uh, is that also worth thinking about? Yeah, you cut out a little bit there, but I think I've got the gist of it. Certainly, um, from a system 
strength perspective system strength is locational so you do get the the benefit if you put in the virtual synchronous machines in these areas you enhance the system strength that if uh, you know renewable plant wants to connect in the area that's um, supported it um, but I guess there's other aspects that if there's existing infrastructure to, to, to utilize to connect a virtual synchronous machine in other in other places again it, it'd go back to what the what the targeted application was if it was about you know enhancing system strength in the in the fringes of the grid or if it's about managing minimum demand if you can try and do both great but um, I guess there's a few factors to work through to, to find the optimal um, the optimal location. Yeah, so if I think about New South Wales at the moment, we're putting in place these renewable energy zones and um, maybe Queensland will eventually do one of them. Uh, but if you were looking at the Irana zone, there's been some talk about having a system integrity uh, type of thing. Um, have you uh, ha had a chance to have a think about that at all? No, look, I'm not, not across that particular issue so yeah we wouldn't want to miss misspeak on that yeah yeah and and so uh generally speaking uh, are we building enough of these machines within the nem uh in in your opinion or do we need to actually accelerate like everything else and and what if we talk about acceleration what's the availability of skilled labor like to actually and and you know assets to actually get these machines installed can can we do them or are you running into the same sort of supply chain issues that everyone else is yeah look it's a good good question i, I kind of reflected when we spoke 18 months ago the um i guess it was the the technology that was in question and has it proven itself in X, Y, and Z application? And I feel like now, especially looking at the four applications in the AEMO white paper, they've all been demonstrated by, by projects we've undertaken. And it's more about acceleration because we see, you know, it's not just in the, the reports, we're seeing it in the media, coal-fired power stations are closing. If it takes two years to connect and register, you know, 2025 20, is here before we know it. Um, so I do think there'll be probably other challenges beyond the technology that will that will hold us up and um, we can all see the scale we need to get to I think um, again when we look at the the minimum you know AEMO's report saying with the current toolkit they can't operate more than I think 77% renewables they need to actively have 25% generation from synchronous machines just to keep the system secure. So I think that's about four to, to six gigawatts. So that gives you an idea of how many virtual synchronous machines or a mix of virtual synchronous machines and gas generation we need um, to operate the NEM um, without any synchronous machines online. So um, that gives you, a, I guess, a bit of scale, but I think it's more about can we do it quick enough? And I think some of the processes and um, approaches are what's going to hold us up rather than, than the technology. So, Stephen, what's the first, what would you like to see to speed the process up? What's the thing that would most help, help do you think? Look, I think there needs to be, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take everybody. I mean, all vendors, obviously, we like doing these projects, but it, it's great that the, the industry moves forward with, with other vendors doing projects with this technology. 
Um, and I think there's some co common challenges around grid connection, you know, fair allocation of risk against, you know, the developer or the OEM and, and just trying to have, I guess, a, a better playing field because I guess we all want the same goal and everybody I appreciate is, is scrambling to do their best because it is an unprecedented change. But I think, um, yeah, probably didn't answer the question, but a few points there and also I guess that the incentives to line up as well, I think unfortunately we're, we're trying to, um, yeah, trying to deliver with, with some of the, the rules and the markets and the mechanisms that are, you know, for legacy um, operation that, that obviously are being enhanced and adapted, but it's just incredible how fast things are moving that it's very hard to, to keep up. Yeah, I, I get that. But so what I think you're telling me uh, um, is that you really want uh, some rules and some revenue models that favour the introduction of these systems. You, you reckon more or less that we're uh, past the point of needing to do arena stuff to prove it up. You'd like to have, I don't know, a virtual inertia or an inertia market or as well as a fast frequency market and a system strength market. Uh, um, all, all available, revenue services all available to you? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think that Arena's um, important to help drive it in the time frame we need and, and we still, um, I guess, have proven a lot of things but doing it at a, a scale that's enough to actually see it, um, you know, in a NEM context is important. So I think that's that's very well placed. But, yeah, obviously you know, system strength, being able to monetize the, the extra services grid forming converters provide is, is obviously going to be crucial at the moment. All you can really do is, is offset the cost of another technology and um, to help fund it. But, you know, energy storage across the NEM is, um, you know, fairly marginal business cases at best and typically need some sort of external funding um, to get it over the line, so to have to be able to monetize system strength or inertia would certainly go a long way to, to getting some of these to, to pencil out. And I guess the general thing is, as, you, as we all point out, that wherever we look, we're not going anywhere nearly fast enough. Uh, we're not going fast enough economically. Uh, the technologies mostly exist, but we just don't. Uh, it's uh, a lot of boldness is actually required, but careful and considered boldness. But that's in my opinion. Stephen, is there anything else uh, you would like to tell our listeners before we sign off today? No, look, I just, um, again, appreciate the opportunity to have another chat with you, David. I think um, from where we were 18 months ago, it, it encourages me how fast, uh, I guess, the understanding has, has moved. So it, it gives me reassurance that we're on the right track. Um, but I also think that we now just need to get on with it because there's there's not too many aspects that, that haven't been, you know, proven or, or undertaken. So I'm hoping if we if we talk in another 18 months, we can um, see the same sort of progress. And I take it the business inquiry level's not too bad. Yeah, look, certainly for um, for virtual synchronous machines and grid forming, it, it's nothing new to us. Um, we've delivered a number of these systems, and they are complex. So. Um, yeah, we're doing our best to participate, but I think, um, you know, there's other challenges in the world at the moment that are probably, um, yeah, probably a bigger issue to overcome, but hopefully that'll normalise and, 
and um, yeah, we'll, we'll see where we are in 18 months. And, 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 and Stephen, do you see any mar any um, other grids around the world that are in, a, in advance of West Australia, in West Australia or Australia in terms of uh, moving this way, or is Australia pretty much a world leader here? Oh, no, Australia is definitely a, a world leader in this space, um, which is a, a good and bad thing, depending on, on what part of the, the value chain you're in. But it's certainly an exciting place to work. There is, you know, some pockets, you know, Ireland, the, the panhandle in Texas. There are some grids that exhibit similar characteristics, but Australia is quite unique with its, you know, vast vast grid that spread over um, you know many load centers from the the north of Queensland down to, to South Australia and um, the uptake of renewables system strength I don't think was a term anybody really knew about several years ago and, and Australia's gone a long way to, to to demonstrating what that is and and now we're we're trying to find the solutions to to resolve it Thanks very much, Stephen, and I'm sure Hitachi AVV will be uh, right up there at the forefront. Thanks for talking to Energy Insiders today. Cheers. Thanks, David. And that was Stephen Sprout from Hitachi Energy. Uh, David, um, um, great interview. Um, really interesting stuff. It sounds like to me like we're going to hear more from the sort of um, remote grid and the WA grids than we are from the main grid, I think, any t on, on, on the development of the grid forming inverters, because some of the main grid developments have been a little bit slow. Well, I, I think uh, one of the underlying themes Stephen was getting to is the urgency, right? These coal generators are shutting down fast, right? And so we've got to agree on how we're going to provide system services in their absence. And, and you know, we, we need that agreement reasonably soon as well. And so we need to start investing in these things. Um, um, look, it's, it's a long uh, podcast, Giles, and there'll be room to talk about it some more. But I'm certainly grateful we've got people with Stephen's skills and others in the industry with their skills because we have got a skills shortage on uh, at the moment because we don't invest enough in university uh, courses and training. That's another uh, bugbear that I could get onto. But uh, should we just thank our sponsors, Giles, and uh, uh, let our viewers get back to the rest of their lives? Let's just do exactly that. So thank you very much to Pylon and Evergen for your ongoing and continuing support. Thanks, David, for doing that great interview with Stephen Sproul. Thanks, um, Stephen Sproul, for joining us. Um, thanks, everyone um, out there for listening. Um, great to catch up with many of you at the Smart Energy Expo last week and some more conferences to come over the coming weeks and months. So bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.